Let us uh, open our Bibles to John chapter 1. This morning we find ourselves in verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. I suppose that there are many ways by which we could prove the utter sinfulness of man. Evil can take many forms, and the examples abound. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to two particular manifestations of sin that reveal quite uniquely the levels to which the human mind can both ascend and descend toward evil. I'm just trying to set the stage for our passage this morning. First, let me speak about the movement which seeks to ascend toward evil. This one is known as utopianism. Utopianism. What is utopianism? I think the best way to think about utopianism is by mentally going back to that very critical time in ancient history, which we know as the Tower of Babel. The essence of the Tower of Babel and also the central impulse behind it was what we read in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, where the peoples of the earth gathered and they made the, the following proclamation which represented their collective thinking. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, let us build our world without God. Let us be like God himself. Let us be in charge of this whole thing. A sentiment captured quite well in the words of William Ernest Henley, who in his poem Invictus said, and I quote, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul whatever. Utopianism says, we are fine, alone. We don't need God. We can create our own happy world without him. This is our world. We are at the center, and the creation of an ideal place is up to us. Let us do away with God. Let us make much of ourselves. One such utopian thinker was a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was described by someone as, quote, a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. How about that? And he was. Rousseau had five children, all of whom he abandoned in infancy. Ironically, he believed utopia was possible on this earth, certainly not for his children. And at the center of this utopia was the state, government. For Rousseau, utopia on earth was possible or is possible when the government possesses control over all the affairs of the people. Order, harmony, and happiness then can only be had when the power is centralized or concentrated in a few who are in charge of the whole. Guess who bought into this idea? Karl Marx. Karl Marx took those ideas and ran with them, and we know how that Turned out, utopianism then doesn't do completely away with the idea of God. Rather, it simply redefines who God is. 
And instead of believing in a transcendent being outside of the human realm, utopianism brings divinity down to the human realm and establishes man as what? God. In summary, utopianism makes too much of man, and it is the evil ascension of man to dethrone the true God. That is the first movement. The second movement is the one that seeks to descend toward evil. It is the polar opposite of utopianism. This one is known as, can anybody guess? I'm giving you some time so you can give my vocal cords a break. You can, you can take a guess. They're never going to guess it. Anti-natalism. Anti-natalism. Some of you can already tell simply by hearing the name what this movement is about. is the polar opposite of utopianism. Simply put, anti-natalism is the idea that human procreation is wrong. Is wrong. Some even argue that to procreate, that is to bring children into the world, is morally wrong. Different arguments have been proposed ranging from the pain and suffering to which you are subjecting children when you bring them into the world to the dangers of overpopulation. Arguments go from the religious and philosophical to the ethical and scientific. But there is one sub-movement that came out of antinatalism known by the initials VHEMT. VHEMT. Here's where the break comes in. If you're wondering what that means, here it is. Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And yes, you hear that correct. It is a real thing. As the name says rather explicitly, the problem with the world is what? It's humans. It's humans. And the real God of this world is the environment. Humans are the ones hurting the environment and nature. Therefore, humans need to go extinct, literally. Humans need to die out in order to let the environment flourish. And the peaceful way to do this is by adopting anti-natalist or anti-procreation measures. In other words, stop having children. Stop procreating. Stop conceiving babies in the womb. If you're having children, you're destroying the environment through the excessive use of natural resources. Antinatalists go by this philosophy that says, quote, sleep is good, death is better, but the best is to have never been born. While in utopianism, man is the God who can ascend to the highest happiness by himself and be king, in antinatalism, Man is the vice who needs to descend into complete oblivion and be forgotten. One is the absolute exaltation of man, while the other is his complete humiliation. On this Christmas day, however, we are here to give our full attention to the one event in all of human history that effectively and simultaneously destroys both utopianism and antinatalism. What is that event? Well, follow as I read John 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is among the weightiest statements ever written by a human pen and the most meaningful ever known to the human mind. We find ourselves face to face with the truth that defines what it means to be human. Our last ingredient then for a fully satisfying Christmas feast is this, incarnational glory. Incarnational glory. And I know that the word incarnational is not really a word, but it works. Incarnational glory. I will point out three aspects of the glory of the incarnation, followed by three critical lessons that we learn from Christmas. First, the glory of the incarnation defined, verses 14 and 15, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If the introduction to the gospel of John were an earthquake, verse 14 would be the epicenter. The first thing that I want you to notice about verse 14 is that John introduces a new title. Did you see it? So far we have seen three, the word, the life, and the light. But in verse 14, we are given yet a fourth title, which we hadn't seen before in the introduction, namely, the son. As if using the personal pronoun he wasn't enough, John now brings the intimacy between, the, between God and the word to a whole new level. The word and God are not only together, but there is a father-son relationship. According to John, the word of verse 1, the life of verse 4, and the light of verse 9 is also the son in verse 14. Four titles, one person. Then John will drop the bomb in verse 17 by giving this person an actual human name. But so far, this person has been described as an eternal person who shares deity with God, but who is also not the same as God, which goes perfectly well with the father-son category. Father-son means same essence, yet distinct. So there is distinction in oneness. Verse 18 will clear all and any doubts. But for the, for the first time in his gospel, John does something quite shocking. Here's the epicenter of it all. John does the unthinkable. He unites the infinite with the finite. If the philosophers of antiquity would have read this, they would have felt an electric shock running through their spines. To begin with, they would have had tremendous problem referring to the logos or the word using the personal pronoun he. For the Greek philosophers, whatever the supreme being was, it was an impersonal it, never a personal he. 
but to take this even further and say that the eternal Logos is an infinite person who became a finite person was unfathomable. Nevertheless, this is the glory of Christmas. Or as Paul said, this is the mystery of godliness. There are two words in verse 14 that define the glory of the incarnation, becoming and dwelling. Can you see them? Becoming and dwelling. The word became and the word dwelt. Let's see each one in turn. The word became flesh. Now, the word flesh is to be understood as humanity, manhood. The word became flesh. The disembodied logos became embodied. The disembodied logos became embodied. Literally, the word is infleshed. He became infleshed. The infinite word became a finite human being. The immortal embraced the mortal. Let me humbly offer this to you. It is my contention that no other declaration in Scripture provides a better definition of humanity. No other provides a better definition of humanity. For in that short statement, the word became flesh, John reveals both the absolute helplessness of man and the definitive worth of man at the same time. How did I reach that conclusion? Well, just ask yourself this question. Why did the word become flesh? There are two reasons. Flesh is ruined. Flesh is loved. Flesh is ruined. Flesh is loved. Man is ruined. Man is loved. The word who is eternal life and light enter the realm of those who were ruined. And he did so by becoming like one of them. I will explain what I mean by ruined in just a little bit. But the word became flesh in order to restore ruined flesh, meaning humanity. What's the logic behind it? Here we're getting into the heart of the gospel, what we call the good news. This is the logic. Flesh, meaning humanity. Humanity sinned and became ruined. Therefore, the restoration of flesh or humanity from sin to glory must be done by and in the flesh. The work must be done by a human. As John Owen said, quote, the same nature that sinned must work out the reparation and recovery from sin. It cannot be any other. It cannot be an angel. It cannot be an animal. It has to be human nature. So we can synthesize the teaching of Scripture like this. Flesh sinned, therefore flesh deserves to die, for the wages of sin is death, unless Flesh can recover itself by repairing the damage incurred. The solution to the sin problem must come from the flesh. Just like a body with cancer must itself recover from that cancer in order to survive, human nature sinned and human nature itself must recover in order to live. It has to be a work from within. This creates a problem. 
For as we already saw last week in verse 9 makes clear that the light and life are not here below, but above. In other words, flesh is bound to be flesh and cannot lift itself up from the mire of sin. That is the condition of humanity. We are stuck down here, and that's the dilemma. Flesh is in trouble, but only flesh can provide the solution. So, the Word became what? Became flesh. Became flesh. To what purpose? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. To what purpose did the flesh become, I'm sorry, the Word become flesh? Hebrews chapter 2. And I want us to consider verses 14, 16, and 17. The answer is quite definitive as you rem- as you. As you go there, please remember what I have said. The word is life and light. John has described it that way. It is eternal. The word who is also the son of God, according to verse 14, is eternal life in himself. Therefore, the word in his eternal and divine nature, listen to this, the word in his divine and eternal nature cannot help us. He cannot help us. Really? Yes. There is something, the word, who is eternal life, cannot do. Why? Because he is eternal what? Life. God is life. The word is eternal life. There's something the word cannot do. The word cannot die. Because the word is eternal life. So the word is, is, uh, is up there in eternity, living forever with eternal life. He's life in himself. He cannot die. So as he is in himself, eternal, perfect, glorious, he cannot help us. But why, why are we talking about death? Because if the word is going to help us, the word must submit himself to death. Because the wages of sin is death. But we owe that debt. Flesh owes that debt, not the word. Exactly. Follow as I read. Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children, meaning ourselves, share in flesh and blood, he, personal pronoun, Himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning what? Flesh and blood. But why? That through what? Death. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 16. For surely is not, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Let me paraphrase. The word became a human in order to suffer. Or to be more direct, yet the word was conceived as a human child in order to die as a human man. Brothers and sisters, is that not a perfect summary of the human experience? We are born to die. And that's what the word did. But this takes us to the heart of it all. How did the disembodied word assumed a body by the virgin birth? When the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and announced that she would bear a son, her immediate response was something like this. Wait a minute. I know I am young and old, but I am old enough to know that it takes two to tango. And so far, it is just me. And so Gabriel explains the virgin birth like this, Luke 1.35. This is how it's going to happen, Mary. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is an amazing passage. The infinite word entered this finite world through actual human conception in the womb of a woman. Actual conception of an actual human being in an actual womb of a woman. But this conception of the fleshly body of the word in the womb bypassed one thing. The one thing that has kept humanity in darkness, namely the seed of the male. It was an actual human conception. The word did become a man, but it was also a virgin conception, meaning the word became a man, but without sin, because the seed was not provided by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit himself, which reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the incarnation was a Trinitarian endeavor. The Father sent the Son, meaning the Word, and the Spirit created the seed for the body of the Word in Mary's womb. But it was the Son who became a man, not the Father, not the Spirit. Thus, the divine nature was not changed. The divine nature was not altered. Rather, the Word assumed humanity without changing his very essence. Now, before we move on, let me briefly address the next word of verse 14 that helps define the glory of the incarnation, and that is the word dwelt. The word not only became flesh, but the word came to dwell among us, says John. This is truly, truly glorious. We know that John was writing to a Greek-speaking Jewish audience. Therefore, the term that John uses to say that the word dwelt among us is very significant. The word dwelt was a direct reference to the Old Testament tabernacle or tent of meeting. Essentially, the passage can read this way. The word became flesh and the word tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. This is astonishing. For any Jew who knew his Old Testament, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting were symbols of God's abiding presence with his people. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Why? Because God loves to dwell in the midst of his people. In the Old Testament, this meant the tabernacle, and later on, this meant the temple. God's presence descended upon these places to remind Israel that God was with them and among them. But now John is taking this to the dwelling of God to a whole new level. The word came down and pitched his tent among us. It means the following. The word became flesh in order to forever seal his presence with humanity as a human. God has confined himself, concealed himself in a human body forever. The word, the life, the light, who is also the son, did not become flesh temporarily. The word entered the human world in a human body eternally. God and man, the infinite and the finite, have forever been united in the incarnation, and that unity will never be dissolved. Jesus is forever, forever the God-man. And please understand this, it is a unity, not a mixing. 
the incarnation is not the human being absorbed into the divine, nor the divine absorbed into the human as if mixed. Not at all. In the incarnation, the word became flesh, but neither the word nor the flesh stopped being divine and human respectively. The incarnation is the perfect union of God and man forever. The incarnation is the union of persons, divine and human, not the mixing of natures. Jesus is not a mix between divine and human. He is both perfectly divine and perfectly human, perfectly united in one person. Consequently, the baby, that baby that Mary and Joseph held in their arms was literally one of a kind. There never was one like him, nor will there ever be one like him. And so the baby grew taller and stronger. He grew as a man, and as a man he walked among people until one day a name by the name of John the Baptist saw this man walking, pointed at him, and what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look at verse 15. Look at what John the Baptist preached. And this explains why John the Baptist preached this message at verse 14. The Baptist said this, He who comes after me, in terms of chronology, ranks before me in terms of worth, because he was before me in terms of existence. John the Baptist knew when he saw Jesus, the one walking among people, that he was also the one by whom all things were made, but he was now in the flesh. The word in the flesh. But notice that the incarnation is not just objectively glorious, but also subjectively glorious in that we, the subjects, can experience it. And that is our next point, the glory of the incarnation experienced. The glory of the incarnation experienced. Verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, whose fullness? The words, the word become flesh. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17 is the bomb in that here John finally discloses the identity of the word. It is none other than Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph, an actual man. The one who died on a cross and rose again from the dead. Jesus is the God-man, the only and unique savior of the world. But let me point out in summary form what verses 16 and 17 are conveying. The incarnation is not only objectively or historically true in the sense that it actually happened, the incarnation is not only the word entering the world by means of actual human beings such as Mary and her womb, Joseph and as his earthly father, and John the Baptist as his forerunner. All of these events are historical and all of these events are objective. They happened, actually happened during the first century AD. They are objective in the sense that whether you believe them or not, they happened objectively. That is, they happened outside of us, the subjects. But the incarnation is not only an, ob an object, or objective fact of history, it is also a shareable event. Shareable event. Think of events such as the Revolutionary War. It happened objectively in history. There were actual people involved who lived and died, but the Revolutionary War is also a shareable event. 
in the sense that its impact is for generations after. The land of the free didn't just happen. It is the product of a specific event of the past from which we can enjoy the benefits today. Likewise, and in a much greater sense, the incarnation is a shareable event in that its impact is meant to affect others for all generations to come. Jesus was born, he lived, died, and rose again as a man because he did it all for the sake of humanity, for the sake of man. And the specific benefits of this event are these, grace upon grace. But here I want to take a little bit of caution. John says in verse 17, for the law was given to Moses or through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we are not careful, we might conclude that the Old Testament administration under Moses did not have any grace or that it did not have any truth, as if Moses and Jesus were antithetical to one another or as if they were mutually exclusive. If that were the case, then all the Old Testament saints who lived prior to Jesus would have died in their sins, for no one is righteous. But this would be a severe mistake. John is not creating a dichotomy between Moses and Jesus. What John is saying, rather, is this, that Moses was the shadow while Jesus is the substance. Old Testament saints were saved by grace as a free gift because they believed in the truth of God's promises as they looked into the future for the coming of the Savior. So there was grace and truth in the Old Testament administration by way of promises represented symbolically by sacrifices, the temple, feasts, the priest, offerings, the law, etc. The difference then is that while the Old Testament had grace and truth by way of promises and anticipation, Jesus is the very embodiment of grace and truth. He is the fulfillment of grace and truth. And because the Word became flesh, His perfect grace and His perfect truth can now be given to all flesh from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This means that Jesus provides an overabundance of grace and truth. And if you will enjoy the favor of God, then there is no other way but to trust in the embodiment of God's grace and the embodiment of God's truth, namely Jesus Christ, the man. Apart from him, there is no grace or truth. And so we have reached the bottom line. And this is our third point. The glory of the incarnation summarized summarized. Here's a summary of everything. Verse 18. John says this, no one has ever seen God. However, we could add that word there. However, the only God, which is interesting, right? No one has ever seen God. However, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Verse 18 brings us full circle. It is the official closing of John's introduction to his gospel. And in here, John explains the summary of the incarnation. The word became flesh in order to reveal the one who was hidden from our sight, namely the Father. That is the whole point. That is the whole point. What is eternal life? How did Jesus explain eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they may know him who sent me. That is the point of life, that we might know God as Father. And this is why the Word became flesh. That is the central point. God, who is beyond the reach 
of the human eyes can now be seen because the Word, who is also God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he became visible, material. He became a human. Therefore, Jesus could say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So who is Jesus? He is the Word who was with God, the true light, the Son, the only God who is at the Father's side. And he became flesh to show us the Father. He is our way back to God. Christmas happened so that we might see the invisible God in the person of Jesus Christ. Also, let me give you just three critical lessons that we learn from Christmas. And by Christmas, I, I'm talking about, I'm thinking about the incarnation itself. Here are three lessons from Christmas. Here's the first one. Christmas humbles the sinful pride of man. Christmas humbles the sinful pride of man. Christmas reveals something that is just too painful and destructive to human pride. Christmas, and by that I mean the incarnation of the word, it reveals that sin is transferred from generation through generation in the very process of procreation. We are sinners from the moment of conception in the womb. We are ruined from the start. This further reveals that our condition is final and irreparable, at least irreparable by us. It is not within our power to eradicate our ultimate problem. The very constitution of the human being from its very inception is inextricably joined to sin. The material, that is, the seed and the immaterial, that is sin, are inseparable from the beginning. This is why the story of the Old Testament is a vicious cycle. The cycle being this, sinful behavior that leads to judgment, that leads to repentance, that leads to deliverance, repeat over and over again. The message is clear and the message is devastating. We cannot fix ourselves. And this is the darkness to which the fall launched us. It is a darkness that walks alongside us from conception in the womb and the central problem for the utopians. The reason why all attempts at happiness apart from God are doomed to fail. Sin will always get in the way. It is just too intrinsic. Thus, Government gives way to abuse. Power gives way to corruption. Sex gives way to immorality. Money gives way to greed. Freedom gives way to licentiousness. Family gives way to dysfunctionality. Marriages give way to divorce, etc., etc. Sin corrupts everything. And it begins at the moment of conception. Men, when left to themselves, self-destruct. So those who seek to reach the height of glory, apart from the one who descended from glory to us, they crumble and they fail and they fall, just like the Tower of Babel did. It amounted to nothing 
but confusion. We need the Lord Jesus who descended from on high to become like one of us who was conceived of a virgin, therefore without sin. Christmas is the reminder that humanity cannot reach happiness and glory, but that the word, the true light, the one who is at the Father's side came down to lift us up. And our calling is simply this. You must reach the end of yourself. Stop being a burden of pure self-reliance and entrust yourself to him who came down, the Lord Jesus. Here's the second lesson. So the first one is, what is it? Yes, very good. Whatever you said, I trust you. Number two, Christmas rebukes, Christmas rebukes the unjustified destruction of man. Now, many issues could be brought up at this point, but I will limit myself to one, one that has been politicized to death, abortion. We must be clear, utterly, fully, completely, clear that abortion is not a political issue. And if you think it is, I stand against you all the way through. Let me try to prove it to you. At the heart of human redemption, at the heart of the gospel itself, stands the glorious fact, the glorious fact that the word became flesh by means of conception in the womb. The eternal word became flesh, which means the eternal word embraced all of what it means to be human except for sin. And he did so by becoming what? A fetus. A fetus. And the word became a fetus in the womb of Mary. This truth effectively removes everyone anyone's ability or right to dismissively say it is just a fetus. Really? Isn't it just a fetus? Well, tell that to Mary. Do you realize what the incarnation teaches us? The word became a fetus because the word came to save man in his entirety from beginning to end. He entered the entire human experience except for sin, and the word came into this world as a tiny fetus in Mary's womb and died as a grown man on the cross, but the same one in his body rose again from the dead. Therefore, we dare not touch that human life in the womb because at the center of creation is not the environment, is not animals, is not plants, not even angels, but humans. And yet here we are seeking to destroy it. And we learn this from the fact that the word did not become an animal, an angel, a plant. He became flesh. If you call yourself a Christian and yet you support, support abortion, then consider what you're saying about the incarnation of the Son of God. It was just a fetus? No. From beginning to end, from the very conception until his death and his resurrection, he was always the savior of the world. And number three, final, Christmas confirms. Christmas 
confirms the only hope of man. Wow, it's earlier than I thought. We can hang out here for longer than I thought, huh? I'm just kidding. My voice is almost giving up, so perfect timing. Here's then the message of the incarnation. Consider this. To the utopians, the incarnation says, the word came down, and without him you cannot ascend to glory. Don't try don't try to make a name for yourselves. And to the anti-natalist, the incarnation says, the war became flesh because humanity matters. Don't try to destroy what God loves. But seeing then that utopianism and anti-natalism both fail to offer a true definition of man and his purpose, what is then our only hope? Well, Christmas is about reminding ourselves that the Word came in the flesh. Therefore, our only hope is confirmed, and it consists of three words, faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. I give the last words to John Owen, who said this, and I quote, Faith is not capable of of greater encouragement or confirmation than lies in this one consideration, that what we are to believe unto for salvation, this has been delivered unto us by God himself in our own nature, namely flesh. What could confirm our faith and hope in God? What could encourage us to expect or expect acceptance with God like this ineffable testimony of his goodwill unto us? The nature of things is not capable of greater assurance, seeing that the divine nature is capable of no greater condescension. The word became flesh. Brothers and sisters, the word became flesh. Let us rejoice and be glad in this. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this um, humble reminder of the importance of the incarnation. And forgive us, Lord, for the times in which we take these things for granted. We forget the glory. We get distracted by so many things. Many of them are good things. And yet we forget the most important thing, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the message is clear. You love us. You love us. And apart from the condescension of the word, we would be lost. And yet here we are, full of hope. Even in the midst of much darkness in the world, our hope never dies because the word became flesh. And so we join the angels. And as we consider that baby, we simply say, Glory to God in the highest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.